Good afternoon from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, mysteries of climate change and snowball earth. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Marty Becker, who will discuss the mysteries of dogs and cats. We'll also find out where the crab nebula is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. And once again, I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of continued befuddlement. Confused, man? <laughs> Generally in a daze, I guess. Me too, man. It's all the drugs, really. <laughs> Are you on Prozac? Prilosec. Oh, okay. I'm on Sudafed. <laughs> Real game. So actually, there is something to be confused about. Mm. So of course, you know, we say that the debate on global warming is over, right? But what exactly is causing it, still not very clear. And although the main culprit, we blame it on carbon dioxide, there's actually several greenhouse gases out there. And in fact, under the Kyoto Protocol, there's, I think, six main gases. Mm-hmm. These include methane, fluorine, nitrous oxide, and their compounds. So it turns out, a paper that was written in Science at the end of March, that you know, besides carbon, we should look at all these other greenhouse gases, which they estimate to account for about 40% of the global warming effect. So is there any one of those that is perhaps more of a main culprit of that 40%? They're all pretty bad. In terms of molecule to molecule, if you look at fluorine, mm-hmm. it's about 10,000 times worse than a molecule of CO2. Uh. And something that's actually pretty common is nitrous oxide, which eventually gives rise to those uh, smoggy haze in the sky, that brown stuff. Right. That has a global warming potential that's 300 times that of carbon dioxide. Wow. So you only need that a, you know, a fraction of what the CO2 is to have the same effect. But are these admitted at a larger rate or a smaller rate than the CO2 by man-made sources? There's still a lower rate, but in fact, if you look at some of the mechanisms for the Kyoto Protocol in terms of reductions, what actually uh, been created under these clean development mechanisms, some of the HFCs, uh, hydrofluorocarbons, yeah. those apparently have greenhouse potential, which are like thousands of that of wow. CO2. It's irregular since there's a whole air conditioning refrigerant industry out there. But in a sense, it's probably a bad trade-off, right? Because those are several fold yeah. uh, more potent than CO2. Yeah. They're easy to account for, at least since we know who's manufactured them and mm-hmm. where they're traded. But in terms of trying to find out the big picture, the uh, atmosphere, there still needs to be a lot of work. And mm-hmm. one of the big mysteries is what happens to the methane, all that stuff from the cows and the landfills. Right. Although it doesn't live in the atmosphere very long, we really don't know what exactly happens to it once it goes out there. Right. Well, I thought there's a lot of carbon sinks uh, in the ocean as well. There could be. I mean, I don't know offhand, mm-hmm. but I'm sure there are ways to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. It's certainly uh, useful to know, I guess. So don't just cut back on your CO2. Cut back on fluorine, nitrous oxide, methane. Back on life, then. <laughs> well, you know, I wasn't doing that much living anyway. <laughs> so this was in journal Science, almost our favorite journal, written by Keith Shine from the University of Reading in England.
maybe the solution for all the global warming, of course, is a massive global cooling. So we should enter the ice age. In there, well, huh? yeah, or at least a snowball Earth. Ah. The old snowball Earth theory, which of course is the idea that during at least one point in history, massive glaciers covered most of the Earth, right. pushing it past a tipping point where it reflected all the sunlight and cooled down the planet. Some people claim that we're just getting off from the last ice age. Yeah, well, period. I think we're overdue, apparently, according to some theories, right? Uh-huh. And the interglacial periods are actually much shorter than periods where it's heavily glaciated. Right. But so, actually, a number of researchers are suggesting that, in fact, the snowball Earth theory is maybe not completely correct, because the, the snowball Earth theory says that ice covered the entire planet mm-hmm. during one of these periods. Uh-huh. So this is going back and forth, and particularly people are suggesting that around the equator, the ice never actually made it that far. So the polar bears never went to the equator then? Unless they had like a summer holiday or something. <laughs> but so what happens is that a group of researchers uh, led by Philip Allen, he's a geologist at Imperial College London, and his colleagues went and looked at composition of mudstones in Oman, dating back about 650 million years during this period of uh, the last glacier or snowball earth period. Right. And what they found was evidence essentially that these rocks had reacted with fresh air and oxygen similar to what would be like in a very warm climate. Okay. Which they suggest is not congruent with snowball earth where the ice had reached all the way to the equator. And so as a result then they say it was more like what they call a slush ball earth rather than a, a snowball. Ball. Yeah. So oh, okay. Not completely ice covered at that point but at least most of the point. But they said so it's more like a smoothie. Yeah, with a nice cherry topping. Again, it was measurements that they show is that glaciers were apparently advancing and retreating in very warm cycles. But according to Harvard geochemist Daniel Schrag, he says the same sort of patterns in the rocks could be seen if uh, the snow was sublimating at the same time. So that could give the same kind of effects, even in a snowball climate. So again, the the debate rages on. (laughs) It was very fascinating work. And this was, oddly enough, not published in our favorite journal, but was rather published in a geology. And that's all for our look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Marty Becker will join us to explain the mysteries of pet behavior. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, animals can often baffle us with their peculiar behavior. Nowhere is this more fully the case than with our pets. Why do animals do what they do, and is there a biological explanation? Well, joins today to talk about this issue is Dr. Marty Becker. Dr. Becker is an adjunct professor at Washington State University College of Veterinary Medicine, a renowned author of two syndicated columns, numerous books, and host of a nationally syndicated radio program. His new book, Why Do Dogs Drink Out of the Toilet and Do Cats Always Land on Their Feet, explores the mysterious world of pet behavior. Dr. Becker, thank you very much for joining us today on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Oh, tickled to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program and certainly written a, a few very interesting books. I'm curious, so what is more popular, dogs or cats? <laughs> that's, a t- that's a tricky question. You know, some of us are dog people, some of us are cat people, some of us love all animals. I think if somebody had bamboo shoots under their fingernails and had to pick, they'd always have one that was probably their, you know, if they were on the proverbial desert island, could only have one species, there's probably one they they would pick. There There are more cats and dogs in the United States, but because more households have multiple cats, there's actually more households that have dogs. 
so it's because of how you count it if you're just going by numbers. There's certainly a lot more money spent on dogs than cats in the United States as far as the amount spent on pet products, the amount spent on grooming, boarding, the amount spent on veterinary services, the amount on dogs far dwarfs what's been on cats. Uh, that brings up an interesting point, and one of the questions in the book is, cats seem fairly aloof. Do they actually really need humans for their care? Well, I've often joked about cats that if they had an imposable thumb and could use a can opener, they might not need humans. <laughs> <laughs> Every profession has their own inside humor. Talk about dogs have owners and cats have servants, and dogs come when they're called, and cats say, take a message, I'll get back to you. But really, I think cats get a bad rap. I think of dogs as being that perpetual toddler that likes to hang around your feet and always be around you. And we tease about cats being like teenagers that sometimes hide and only come down to join everybody when it's time to eat. But cats are really only solitary animals if food is very scarce and they're having to compete for limited resources. Places where food is very plentiful, in fact, you see cats together in groups. And within these groups, they're very social. They groom each other. They help raise the, the females help raise the young kittens together. And they're actually very social. So I think some of that stereotypes about them being solitary are, is kind of a misnomer. Hmm. Uh, why is it that cats always seem to go up to non-cat people when they're in a room full of people? <laughs> well, one of the things about these two books, Why Do Dogs Drink Out of the Toilet and Do Cats Always Land on Their Feet?, my co-author, Gina Spadafori, is the Universal Press Syndicate pet columnist. She's an award-winning author. Myself, I'm the resident veterinarian on Good Morning America. I have a PBS special out called The Pet Doctor with Marty Becker. I do a radio show. So we don't get these questions hundreds of times per year or thousands of times per year. In the, the day of the Internet, we get these questions hundreds of thousands of times per year. And when you read these books... They're sassy, they're irreverent, they're written in an edutainment style, but we interviewed 50 of the world's top experts in medicine and behavior. So every answer that's in these books, or I'm going to give you, they are authentic answers based on people that are experts in this field. You know, when you look at cats, and why do they go to the person in the room that hates cats? Here's the explanation for that. Let's say there's four people in the room and a cat walks in. Three of the people love cats, one of the person hates cats. The three people that love cats are going to look at it and go, oh, look at that. Isn't that a beautiful cat? And we're thinking to ourselves, whether it's out loud or in our heads, we're going, choose me, choose me, come to me, come to me. Here, kitty, 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 choose me over these other two people that like cats. That's bragging rights. Now, one person doesn't like cats. They're looking around the room like, I can't see a cat. There's no cat here. Guys, don't come to me. I hate cats. I'm allergic to cats. I don't like cats. Well, the cat looks over there, and it says three sets of eyeballs staring at it, and one set of eyeballs it's not looking at it at all. That is the person they find the least threatening. Because you have to understand, a cat is both prey and predator. So there's part of it that was a predator that would kill mice. There was part of it that was prey for other larger animals, and it was always being threatened. So it has kind of a weird ecological niche. But uh, if you want to prove this thesis, you're at somebody's house. All you want to do, if you want the cat to come to you, don't look at it. And if you don't want the cat to come to you, you look at it. And it's the exact opposite of what you would intuit. Good advice if you want the bragging rights then. Yes, if you want the cat bragging rights, then definitely just, just don't look at the cat, and the cat will probably come to you. <laughs> well, I'm curious about the uh, title from the cat book. Do cats actually always land on their feet? Uh, no, they don't always land on their feet, but surprisingly, 99% of the time they do. And I, this is one of those science projects that's been tested by probably almost every little kid that's ever had a hold of a cat. They always <laughs> hold it on their back and drop it to see what it does, and it's amazing how acrobatic. I mean, they would put a Cirque du Soleil performer or an X-game athlete to shame. What this cat does 
is this cat rotates its head first and spots the ground. Then it spirals the rest of its body into position. Then it spreads its legs out, kind of like flying squirrel action, to help decelerate it so it doesn't reach as high a terminal velocity. The amazing thing about these cats is right before they hit the ground, they completely relax their limbs. Now, you know, if a human, if you jump off something, we tend to brace ourselves for an impact. Well, they relax themselves, and so they spread this impact over a larger portion of their body. Cats have survived as high as 30-story falls and have lived. Most of the time you see cats that get injured do what we call high-rise syndrome. They're in big cities. It's springtime. Somebody's opened the window. A little bug goes by or a bird flies by, and they take a swat at it. They lose their balance, and they fall down. You know, they're certainly not bulletproof when they hit. There's, especially from a long distance, something's going to be injured. But unless the cat is really old, unless the cat has had some other kind of illness, unless it's sick, most of the time they're going to land on their feet. Well, this maybe brings up an interesting question. Cats, they can always climb up into the top of a tree. What about getting down from that tree? Well, I have, a, I have a running joke here. I have my own cats up here at Almost Heaven Ranch. I live on a horse ranch in northern Idaho. We have a golden retriever that loves to chase cats. It never hurts them. It wants to play with them, but hot-wired inside of this predator, this dog, or something like a retriever that wants to give chase, it sees a fleeing cat that gives chase and runs a cat up the tree. Well, those claws are like you know crampons that climbers, mountain climbers use, and they're very adept at climbing up the tree. But unfortunately, it's much more difficult coming down the tree because they have to go down backwards or they have to just leap from a high distance and fall. They're not, they can't walk down the tree the opposite way. I joke with my kids, probably... In the 10 years I've lived up here in this ranch, probably five different times, sometimes after two or three days, we've had to get a ladder for one of our cats and go up in the tree and fetch this cat up 20, 30, 40 feet up a tree. And I've told my kids before, I said, kids, have you ever seen a cat skeleton in a tree? I mean, the cat (laughs) is eventually going to come down one way or another. But as it ends up, you hear their little mournful meow up there. It's cold. It's snowing. And it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, we got to do something. So inevitably, we risk life and limb ourselves and go up in the tree to get it. But most of the time, you put a can of food down at the bottom there or something, and the cat's going to end up coming down on its own. Okay. Cats are sort of renowned for their hearing. Curious, which uh, are the better hearers, cats, dogs, or humans? Well, cats can hear better about twice as good as dogs, and cats can hear about four times as high of frequencies as humans. And here's the thing that's incredible about cats hearing. A cat can actually hear a bat in flight. A cat can actually hear a mouse walking through the grass or the brush 30 feet away. What they do when they rotate those ears around, you see a cat with like little radar antennas are trying to localize that sound. But yeah, they're very adept at detecting movement. They're very efficient night hunters. You know, they were desert dwellers when they, where they came from in the savannas, the deserts of Africa. Those pupils of theirs will dilate. And during, during the day, they're slits. And if you think of that slit, the eyelids are at right angles to those slits. So they close down to just this incredible pinpoint to try to preserve the vision for nighttime hunting. When nighttime comes, their pupils open up twice as big as a human's pupils, and there's that reflective membrane in the back of the eye called the tapetum lucidum, or luminescent tapestry, and that gathers low light and reflects it back onto the retina so that they can see in five times lower light than a human. When that cat's out hunting at night, those whiskers that they have on there are actually used to judge gaps in low light at a trot. So when they're trotting along, those things are like little feelers that let them know, can I make this gap? And the only time it runs into a problem is when the whiskers say, I can make the gap, but they're in large body because the cat is obese. <laughs> it doesn't make the gap. So you see this, it's almost like a cartoon thing where a cat will 
get stuck in something momentarily or hit something just because their body's too big. <laughs> well, it is quite amusing. Maybe moving to dogs now. You have an interesting title for the dog book. Why do dogs drink out of the toilet? Is there a reason for that? Well, here's the answer to that. For, for everything, there's an appropriate container. We had a Christmas party, and when people drink in champagne, it's champagne flutes. With wine, it's wine glasses. With beer, it's beer steins. You know, you wouldn't think of drinking draft beer out of a foam coffee cup. And for this dog that's sitting there, it's got two choices to drink. It's got this tepid bowl of water in the kitchen or the laundry room that's been sitting there all day, maybe two or three days. But in this other room, my gosh, you know, their mom and dad is in all this incredible spring that gushes forth in this room and when they cock their head they hear the sound of running water and in the wild every animal is drawn to running water because running water is healthier than stagnant water and even if it doesn't leak a little bit which is probably undetectable to us in most cases but they can hear it running just even just a little amount it's magically refreshed several times a day it has a larger evaporative surface which by its nature stays cooler And guess what? That porcelain, by its very nature, doesn't impart a taste to the water. So for the dog, it's the obvious choice where to drink. For many cats, they also drink out of there, or else that cat will just love to get up there in that sink and have those drips coming out from the faucet. (laughs) Well, I'm curious, the source of the bad dog breath, then. Well, unfortunately, in the toilet, there's also some things that aren't quite so fresh sometimes. (laughs) And so if you have a dog that's, you know, getting into something that's inappropriate or if somebody tends to not flush regularly, if you have chemicals, all you got to do is keep the toilet seat down. And as far as I know, there's never been a dog capable of, of uh, opening the toilet seat up. Well, we always tease about doggy breath. I'm a practicing veterinarian. The most commonly diagnosed health problem in veterinary medicine is periodontal disease. And, and basically what happens is most people don't take good care of their, their pet's teeth. So a dog, first of all, gets plaque, you know, thick stuff mixed with bacteria on the teeth. That turns into tartar. Tartar is that hard, calcified mineral that gets on the outside of the tooth. These things work their way up under the gum line. You end up with periodontal disease, these inflamed red gums. That's what causes the doggy breath is periodontal disease. And doggy breath isn't, you know, it's funny in cartoons, but in real life it means several things. One, a dog with really bad breath tends to have a diminished relationship with the owner. But worse yet... That sulcus of the tooth, where the root of the tooth fits into the bony structures, that's the most biologically active part of the body. And so a dog with periodontal disease, when they're chewing, when they're just picking something up, you know, a play toy, they're picking something up and carrying it, these teeth move, bacteria get pumped into the bloodstream, and this bacteria has a propensity to end up in the kidneys, the liver, and the heart. And so it slowly erodes and poisons these internal organs. And if you have a dog that you take good care of its oral health, you know, you brush its teeth regularly, you take it in for regular professional care, a dog with good oral health is going to live about 15% longer, and that's an average of two years. So furry fountain of youth is as close as just having good oral health in your pet. Hmm. Uh, Well, I'm curious about the uh, popular adage of how to judge a dog's years or lifespan. One human year equals seven dog years. Is that actually true? Well, it's really funny how that everybody knows that. I mean, you could ask almost anybody. When you see a dog scratch and everybody thinks it has fleas, and, and even up here in northern Idaho where we don't have any fleas, every time they see a dog scratch and they think it has it, even though it, it doesn't, it's probably been inside with wood heat or something and got a dry coat in the wintertime. But we always think of one dog year is seven human years. Here's really about what the way that works. The first year of a dog's life, that dog is sexually mature, it's gone from an adolescent to a young adult, and it's almost its full body size. It's sexually mature. It's gone through puberty. So the first year of a dog's life is equivalent to about 18 years. 
Year two is about 21 years, and then it's about five years thereafter. So I've got a, a four-year-old little Papillon Poodle Yorkie cross, so that dog is, remember, it's 18, then it's 21, then it's five and five, so that dog is about 31 years old as a four-year-old dog. Hmm. And, of course, bigger dogs age much faster than smaller dogs. You know, if you have a large breed dog like a Great Dane or one of the large dogs like that, they can start being an adult, or entering the senior phase of life at five to six years of age. And these little small dogs, the little small poodles, the chihuahuas and things like that, they're not an adult till they're eight, nine years of age. Or not, not an adult, but a senior. One of the things that you uh, talk about in some of your other books is promoting the bond between pets and uh, humans. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, I was born and raised on a farm and ranch in southern Idaho, and pets had a utilitarian role. They were animals. I mean, the, the, the cats were mousers. They got rid of vermin in the granaries in the barn. The dogs had a utilitarian role. They were guard dogs. They were herding dogs. They were retrieving dogs. And within my lifetime, I saw these mousers become moochers. I saw these guard dogs become lard dogs. They move from, in our case, from the barnyard to the backyard and then from the back door to the bedroom to sleep. And so we've had this change from looking at our animals and having a relationship based on a utilitarian role to where now the gift, the relationship, is almost exclusively an emotional role where we depend on them for their unconditional love, their limitless affection, their to-die-for loyalty. And frankly, there's more money spent on dogs and cats now than there are toys and candy combined. And this relationship, once we welcomed them into our hearts and homes in mass, we started to see this incredible gift that they gave us. And uh, I don't see that slowing anytime soon. No, indeed, indeed. Curious, are you more of a dog or a cat person? I love both. But if I was pressed, if I could only choose one and I'm on a desert island, I'm going to take a dog. (laughs) Because I'm the type that I like something that follows me around. I like something that that comes when it's called all the time. I like something that I think would rescue me in a fire, (laughs) would alert me. And and I love cats for a different reason. I I truly do love both dogs and cats. I love horses. I love love reptiles. I love birds. But if I was forced, I just love that closeness, that fact that the dog looks at me with those dancing liquid eyes that just is like I'm a rock star and it just wants to be with me. And I'll greet it when I come home from a long trip or from just being gone to town. And it looks at me like, I just love you. You're just unbelievable. And then I'll go into the bedroom and change my clothes or something and come out and it'll greet me like the second coming of Christ. Like it just can't remember. I got this raucous welcome five minutes ago. And I don't know whether what it says about me, but that's something I like. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Dr. Becker, I want to thank you very much for talking to us on the Grok Science Show. Well, I've had a great time. Thank you so much for letting me be on. And, you know, pet lover to pet lover, I always end sometimes by saying there's only one greatest pet in the world, and every family has it. And people think of me as a celebrity veterinarian they see on Good Morning America or PBS or all these books and stuff, and they're just like, oh, gosh, Dr. Becker, if you could just come to my house and you could see my dogs or cats, you'd realize why I'm so crazy about them. You know, it's just I'm not crazy, you know, for any reason. They're, They're just really special. And The fact is, they're all right. They are very special. Thank you very much for talking to us. You bet. And you were just listening to Dr. Marty Becker explaining the mysteries of pet behavior. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
right, we're back and we're ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. That's right, it's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, dogs or cats? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they're more of a dog person or a cat person. Uh, Dr. Becker, are you ready to play our game? Ready. All right, person number one is Donald Trump. Donald Trump. I would definitely a dog person because... He likes people that look at him with those adoring eyes, that likes to be the perceived leader, the alpha dog, the alpha of the pack. And I can't see him being around anything that would give him the, the furry little finger and ignore him when he was in the room. Uh, number two is Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods. I think he would be a cat person, and I think he would be a cat person because he has a little of that aloofness in him that you see sometimes that he gets tired of crowds, that he's a public figure and sometimes shies away from that kind of limelight and could empathize with something that would have enough for humanity itself and go could retreat to a corner to be alone. <laughs> okay, uh, number three is the uh, famed animal lover, St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis of Assisi, definitely dog lovers. The patron saint of animals is St. Francis of Assisi was actually the Mayo Clinic. Most people don't know this. The Mayo Clinic was founded by the sisters of the St. Francis of Assisi. So we think of this pinnacle of human medicine founded by the patron saint of animals. And again, back then there was dogs had a, were, were kept a lot closer back in that period of time. And so I'm going to guess dog person. Okay. Uh, number four is Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson. Oh, boy. <laughs> I think Mel Gibson is a mystery. I think Mel Gibson, being a fan of his many years ago and watching him go through these different stages where he was a crazy guy that we emulated and he was a sexy guy that women dreamed of being with. And then, you know, there's an old saying about privacy of mind that nobody really knows what somebody is thinking. And every once in a while, under certain circumstances, whether alcohol is the truth serum or something, this parts of your true self is revealed. And I think cats are like that. I think cats are the type that... You really don't know what they're thinking, what makes them tick as much. So I'm going to go cat person. Hmm. Okay, and number five, finally, is, of course, our perennial favorite, the President of the United States, George Bush. George Bush. I'm going to go definitely dog person for, for George Bush. George Bush would be a dog person because, again, he, he wants somebody that loves him no matter what, no matter if the, the polls are down. He makes a gaffe on the on the air and, and looks foolish. No matter what stress, there's always something that, you know, whether you have a bad hair day at work, a, a no hair day from the last round of chemotherapy, you make a, a, a big mistake that the whole world knows about. You feel those stresses of being in charge of our troops and different decisions in our country. You have that thing that greets you like you're the world's greatest, and they love you just like you are. So absolutely 100% dog person. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Dr. Becker, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing our game, the Grokatron 5000, and, of course, talking about your books. Well, uh, again, the Why Do Dogs Drink Out of the Toilets on the New York Times bestseller list. If you love pets and you want to know more about what the world's top experts explain these common behaviors, why dogs are scared of thunderstorms, why do dogs howl at sirens, you know, why do dogs hate baths but love to swim? You know, what's in a hairball for a cat? Why do cats urinate on my clothes when I go on a trip? We interviewed the world's top people, and whether it's for you or somebody that's a pet lover in your life, I know they're going to love these books. Well, I certainly hope they check him out. Dr. Becker, again, thank you very much for joining us today again. Well, thank you, friend. Bye-bye.
Okay, and Bruce Lee will answer to last week's question of the week. Uh, in Hong Kong, we eat everything with leg. Two leg, four leg, six leg, eight leg. We eat uh, everything except chair and table. My favorite is the crab. Crab dish, so good. But where is the crab nebula? I can never find it in the supermarket. Well, it is in outer space, and that is where crab nebula is. Whoa, dude, you just gotta be smooth. Going with the float, but sometimes it gets all chaotic, man. Well, what's that non-laminar flow like, dude? Well, if you know, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. Whoa, you're not gonna win anything, but you just might go with the flow. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us for Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. Perfect Rocks, I'm Frank Link. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. <laughs> <laughs>